Welcome to episode 75 of Love That Album podcast. Morris welcomes his esteemed colleague from the See Here podcast, Bernie Stickwell, to discuss an artist underappreciated in her day, Judy Sill. Judy was the first artist to be recorded on David Geffen's Asylum Records, but never really got the attention she was due. Considered to be a contemporary of much more publicly successful artists like the Eagles, Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt, Judy's music was dictated by a greater sense of urgency, having had a very difficult life up until her recording career, and unfortunately beyond it. No ordinary pop songwriter, she brought a mixture of West Coast folk, country, Bach, theology and UFOs to her music. Sounds like a recipe for disaster? Not a chance. Artistically, it represented the pinnacle of what great songwriting could aspire to. Bernie and Morris will discuss her personal history as well as the beauty inherent in both of Judy's albums, her eponymous debut from 1972 and its follow-up, Heart Food, from 1973. Eric Reanimator's album I Love segment focuses on a compilation called Gotta Keep Rollin', covering the music of Hoyt Axton. Who's that, you ask? Remember Joy to the World by Three Dog Night? Hoyt wrote that song amongst others, and Eric reveals his thoughts about his body of work. All this and more on episode 75 of Love That Album. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? There. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and it's good night from him. And it's good night from it. No, it's the start of the show. What am I saying? You're listening to episode 75 of Love That Album, and on the other end of the Skype connection is my good friend and See Here podcast colleague, Mr. Bernie Stickwell. Good evening, Bernie. Uh, good morning, Morris. Oh, good afternoon. <laughs> it is afternoon. It is your afternoon, of course. It's afternoon, yeah, yeah. It's crazy, so, this international timeline, but isn't technology wonderful that we can have this conversation? Isn't it marvellous? Absolutely. 20 years ago, we'd be doing this uh, via telephone with uh, a tape recorder attached, and uh, <laughs> with it would sound little, terrible and cost a fortune. With one of those little suction cups, like what they used to have in, in the old spy movies, I'm sure. Exactly. That's exactly what I had in mind. Oh, <laughs> so fantastic. So we're here to talk about a couple of albums, actually. We're here to talk about the back catalogue, very limited, very small catalogue, but musically wonderful catalogue of a singer, songwriter, musician, Judy Sill. Now, some of you may be aware of her music, and for some of you, it may be a well-kept secret, but uh, we're hoping to enlighten you or celebrate with you if you are familiar with her music. So we'll get to that in a few minutes. Oh, she put out a couple of albums in the early 70s. The first one was her eponymous debut, just called Judy Sill, and the second one was called Heart Food. So we'll get around to that in a few minutes. What else? Okay, as we like to do on this program, we have our good friend and colleague, Mr. 
Foster, Eric Reanimator, and he's going to be talking to you coming up in a moment about a compilation from a country songwriter called Hoyt Axton. Who is Hoyt Axton, you might say? Well, Bernie, you probably know who Hoyt Axton is as an actor, right? Uh, I actually know him as a musician. I've got a couple of his LPs, strangely well, enough. Well, so. there you go. Well, there you go. Yeah. So you, you'll enjoy yeah. um, you'll enjoy the segment. But he said, I, I'd heard the name, but until un, until Eric went and said to me, you know Joy to the World by Three Dog Night, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well, you know Hoyt Axton. Thought, Hoyt oh, Axton. Man. And he's he's in um he's in Gremlins, right? Is he really? Yeah, he's in Gremlins. I didn't know that. Well, there you, you go. Me something today. You'll ha- oh, well, uh, Eric will teach you something today. So, without any further ado, actually, what we'll do is uh, Joanne, my beautiful wife, is going to give you some contact details, and then we're going to go straight into Eric Reanimator talking about the compilation from Hoyt Axton. It's called "Gotta Keep Rolling." So, after that, Bernie and I will be back to talk about the music of Judy Sill. You're listening to Love That Album. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Now it's time for. An album I love with Eric Reanimator. Reanimator. It was Della and a dealer and a dog named Jake and a cat named Kalamazoo. Left the city in a pickup truck, gonna make some dreams come true. Yeah, they rolled out west where the wild sun sets in the coyote base of the moon. Della and the dealer and a dog named Jake and a cat named Kalamazoo. Hey, Eric Ranmitter here, back for another Love That Album, Album I Love segment. This time around, we're going to be talking about the one, the only, Hoyt Axton. Yep, if you're saying, who the hell is that? He was the dad in Gremlins to most of you, but to many of us, he was also one of the great country folk singer-songwriters. He came to prominence in the 1960s and through the 70s, but most of the 80s as an actor, and to his... Uh, to his death, he was both a musician and an actor, but even if you don't know his name, I guarantee you know his music. Okay, what we've been listening to is a song called Della and the Dealer, and it's from an album that's actually a compilation, and I'll talk about why that is in a moment, but the compilation is called Gotta Keep Rolling: the Jeremiah Years, 1979-81. The songs that you would know that he wrote include... Joy to the World is covered by Three Dog Night. Uh, when Morning Comes with Linda Ronstant. Uh, he wrote a couple songs that were big hits for Steppenwolf. 
including uh, The Pusher and uh, Snowblind Friend. Uh, what else we got here? Uh, Greenback a dollar, covered by, or covered, I guess, by Greenstein Trio. So, uh, not, not a nobody in the world of singer-songwriters by any stretch of the imagination. But what I like about his, his own recordings was mostly his unique voice and just that kind of plaintive, you know, American Southwest delivery. Let's take a listen to some of what he had to offer. of a Johnny Cash or the fire of a Waylon Jennings. He might not have been as uh, hip as Dylan, but he had the talent that allowed him to sit next to all of them when it came to songwriting and storytelling. And uh, he's one of the greats that has been largely forgotten except outside of certain circles. He's definitely uh, somebody worth checking out and worth looking into. Now, I mentioned earlier that I'm going to be talking about this from a compilation. And the reason is that his back catalog has not been reissued in, uh, I don't know, in anything that, that serves his talent well. It's been a couple of compilations here and there, a lot of greatest hits, but if you want to find reissues of his albums, good luck. You're looking at, you know, hefty import fees or whatever. So uh, 
getting this, his music on a compilation is pretty much the way to go. This particular compilation I picked up mainly because it includes what is my favorite song by him. It's a, uh, it's a little ditty called The Devil. It clocks in at just over two minutes. And it was written for a cruddy 70s uh, horror film that I've never seen. But I would like to because it's based on the works of a writer named Manly Wade Wellman, who was kind of a backwoods Lovecraftian kind of guy. But um, this one's going to be a short one, folks. Um, and uh, we're going to go on out with Hoyt Axton playing the devil. And this has been Eric Reanimator, and I'll catch you all next time. It's been raining in the mountains and the rivers on the rise. Cannot hardly reach the other side. And the devil, he's in trouble, I can see it in his eyes. If you don't give him shelter, he'll have no place to hide. The devil isn't dying and he travels in a hearse. He treats you like a dog now, he'd like to treat you worse. But he don't have the answers and if he did, he'd lie. The devil is a joker and he don't want you alive. And some you win and some you lose And the winners all grin and the losers say Deal the cards again Oh, won't you deal the cards again In school it was a front she loved the Lord And some you win and some you lose And the winners all grin and the losers say Deal the cards again Oh won't you deal the cards again Raining in the mountains and the rivers on the rise Cannot hardly reach the other side and the devil, he's in trouble, I can see it in his eyes. If you don't give him shelter, he'll have no place to hide. If you don't give him shelter, he'll have no place to hide. Hey, this is Scott of Married with Clickers. Tune in to hear my wife Kat and me discuss all sorts of movies. We'll cover everything from The Lost Weekend to Weekend at Bernie's. From the big sleep to big mama's house. Well, maybe not big mama's house. And the great thing about Kat is that she's not afraid to speak her mind. And would you be surprised to hear he was nominated for Best Actor that year? For that film? For that film. (laughs) (laughs) But don't take my word for it. Just listen to what the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema has to say about our show. It's a husband and wife show and they discuss movies and stuff. Yeah, a very wife husband show high praise indeed so come find us at marriedwithclickers.libson.com it will save your life or maybe just help you kill an hour I've been looking for someone who sells truth by the pound Then I saw the dealer and his friend arrive, but their gifts looked grim Now I'm tired of hanging on, waiting for a showdown 
Don't you see I gotta write them out Cause the pearl just around the beach Beautiful pearl And we're back from break. Morris here in Melbourne, Bernie and Buff. And you're listening to episode 75 of the Love That Album podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for listening, because if you weren't listening, Bernie and I would still be having a really fascinating conversation, no doubt. But you can get involved and shout at the podcast or whatever if you disagree or say, hell's yeah, if you agree. What do you think about that? Is that a good notion? Yeah, absolutely. Do it. Join us. Join us even though we can't hear you. No, no. But we're sure that everything that you're saying is completely correct. Send us some feedback. That'd be nice. Anyway, so normally in discussing any albums on this show, we may go through, you know, a little bit of band or artist history just to give a feel for the circumstances that the albums were recorded under. A particular event could dictate how a song or an album was shaped. The Judy Sill life story completely leads up to her two albums. It's not just like one little epiphany type of moment. Her whole life was leading to these two records. The funny thing is, though, that there are elements of her life story that completely contradicts the essence of these two albums she probably couldn't have made it if she hadn't lived that life and yet it all seems to be in contradiction to the music that she recorded i don't know i see reinforcement as well as contradiction most of my songs always try to write them that they will make people feel better bernie i want to ask you i feel that there are artists like judy Sill and another artist who we both really really love uh, bill fay i feel that listening to artists like this is part of being in a secret society they're not necessarily they're not household names although they're not necessarily completely obscure but i want to know how did you discover judy's music and you know was it a magazine a song on the radio a friend who recommended her to you how did you find out about her um funnily enough it was indirectly via andy partridge oh nice uh, of xtc he wrote a review of her two LPs when they were reissued. This is probably going back to about 2006, 2007, mm. when I believe the American label Water uh, reissued both her LPs on CD. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote a really glowing review of them both in uh, Uncut magazine. So, uh, yes, uh, he, Andy Partridge wrote these two uh, sort of glowing reviews for her LPs. And I've always been a fan of that kind of uh, late 60s, early 70s sort of California, maybe not so much the singer-songwriter stuff, but just, you know, the, the kind of psychedelic era and the, the kind of music, the sunshine pop and so on that was kind of produced during those years. And, you know, something about his review just really spoke to me and I thought I'd, I'd really need to check these out. These sound great. So completely without hearing anything, I blind bought both of them. Um, And that was probably the best decision I've ever made in my life. So, yeah, probably, yeah, I guess, you know, eight, nine, ten years ago, uh, I first came across her and she's enriched my life uh, immeasurably Hmm. ever since. How about yourself? Where did you um, first hear about her? Well, you know what? I think we both discovered her at around about the same time. I didn't get to read an article, but we have uh, a really fantastic CD shop here in Melbourne. And I I walked in one day and they're always playing great music when you walk in to the place this one occasion i think it had been just after my birthday maybe in 2005 and you know i always get someone gives me like a, a cd voucher for this store and you know it was burning a hole in my pocket think all oh, right gotta go see what they have down there they were playing the well because you, you went and mentioned this this label that had re-released her two albums but i yeah. think a little bit before that rhino records had gone and re-released 
both of our albums with demos and live cuts as well, called it Abracadabra. So it was a two CD set it, with you know both the formal albums, but with all these bonus cuts as well and a beautiful booklet and really wonderfully packaged. And I went into the store and I was just gobsmacked. And I asked the lady who ran the shop, who is this? And she sort of gave me that look, you don't know who Judy Sill is? And I looked at her back and said, no, I don't know who Judy Sill is. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I said, pack this up, my good lady. Put this in a paper bag and I shall take it home and on. And I did like you it's been really a strong part of my life ever since you know there are albums which i've sort of gotten into along the way and thought wow this is really great and i'll play it a few times and it'll be a long while before i can take it out again but judy sill gets a lot of airtime in this household see the bride and the spirit Okay, so more than anyone I can think of, the adage, don't judge a book by its cover, really applies to Judy Self. Now, you know, she wouldn't sacrifice her art, yet she wanted commercial acceptance, so often found you know, through other, for other artists through compromise. She looked like a delicate, fragile, sweet-laced type, yet she'd lived a life that was tough and filled with you know, a boozy mother and stepfather who, I, I read through my notes, was uh, an animator for Tom and Jerry. Her stepfather was, I believe. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, your yeah. stepfather, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, her life was you know, filled with drugs and bad marriages and a criminal past. So, but you listen to the incredible beauty that's inherent in these songs, and you can't believe it's from the same woman who'd lived this really reckless sort of life. And, you know, some of it's circumstantial, and as we'll sort of discuss some of it that she brought on herself. She wrote songs that were, you know, musically and lyrically beautiful and intricate with her own orchestrations and arrangements, and there were lyrics with strong religious convictions all philosophies gained while doing time in prison. Everything here about her life just seems like an opposite. And really, this is one of those rare instances where if you were to watch a film that said, based on a true story, you'd actually give a shit. Often I see things that says, oh, this is based on a true story. And I think, you know, well, just tell me the story. I don't need to know whether this is true or not. But you sometimes wonder. And I think I spoke about this with uh, Hank last year while we were talking about the film Good Vibrations on the See Here podcast. And I thought it, this is, that was definitely an instance where you wanted to know that it was based on a true story because otherwise you'd never believe it. And I tend to think maybe some of this is the same with Judy Sill. I think she'd been quoted as saying something to the effect, like I think it was the, the Buddhist philosophy of uh, a lotus grows from dirt or, or you know, we grow beautiful flowers from fertilizer. And you know, that's her quote. And that really describes her music and her life. Yeah, absolutely. I think she, um, you know, she had to go through all that to get to uh, the point where she was able to to write and record these songs. They just have, uh, gosh, words can't really do them justice. They have such a weight to them, both, you know, emotionally, lyrically, and spiritually. Um, and yet, they're also very simple and direct in a way. Yes. And yeah, I just I, I can't imagine she would have uh, been able to sort of imbue them with that emotional weight if she hadn't been able to, um, or if she hadn't lived the life that she led and saw the things that she uh, 
she saw. You didn't mention that she um, she robbed a gas station. I think she robbed a couple, didn't she? With her, she, uh, she, she did. Please, I'll, I'll, let, you, at the I'll time. let you have. The, I'll let you have the honour. Please tell the story about one of the mistakes that she made in robbing a petrol station. What, what was the mistake that she made? I'm are not you, aware of that. Are, are you, are you, <laughs> did she go back I, to get, grab something? Or? <laughs> no. Uh, okay, oh. so allegedly she was so nervous at, uh, I think, I don't know, her first or second robbery of a petrol station that she went and said to the man behind the register, this is a fuck-up mother sticker. <laughs> Had you not heard that story? Yeah. No, I hadn't. No, oh, that's, I hadn't. that's famous and still legend. I, I love okay. that story. I love it. That's pretty impressive. She spent time in prison because of that. And, well, I don't think it was because of the uh, the robberies, was it? She got busted for passing forged checks. That's true. That's what that's, I read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I believe that's why she spent time in prison. She also spent time in, uh, I guess, you know, uh, juvenile lockup or reform school, whatever you want to call it, beforehand mm-hmm. uh, as well for, uh, again, I think it was, you know, drug-related offences and so on. Yeah, so, she, you know, she kind of lived that Bonnie and Clyde-style uh, life for a while, which is, is it's just crazy, isn't it? And it was in that reform school. I mean, I believe she'd already had, like, some piano training. It's not like she went in there completely unmusical and came out of musical prodigy, mm-hmm. but that was where she used the opportunity she said, right, I don't want to leave here and go back to that old life. I want to do something different. I want to do something productive. So she used the opportunity to um, improve her piano chops and her organ chops. And I guess, is you know, like you sometimes see in the movies, the criminals, they find God, they find theology. And so she you know, learned to play the organ and was playing it at church services. And she yeah. became fascinated with theology. And we'll speak, I'm sure, a fair bit about that as the show goes on. But what I was going to say, oh, okay, so you brought up already the issue about her lyrics, and I was going to ask you this a little bit later on, but now's a good time as any, I guess. Now, I think previously in one of our conversations, I don't remember if it was in a podcast or we were just talking on a Skype chat, and you'd said to me that you're a big fan of directly written lyrics and you're really not a great fan of like when people like Bob Dylan in his I'm guessing like in his blonde on blonde period are writing things in a very abstract sort of way you like to get an honest to goodness straight out story told out there now Judy walks a fine line because there's that she is catching things in poetic terms which is, are not necessarily always straightforward so but you've gone and said that you admire something about her lyrics so i mean overall where do you stand do you do you see her as being a lot in the abstract or do you just sort of see it as a very poetic way of saying things that could be said in a more direct way um well generally i, I tend to be a music first lyrics second kind of guy and I, I do like my lyrics to be a bit more direct and less uh, flowery and obtuse, I guess. Mm-hmm. But knowing about Judy Sill's past and her interests, she does manage to straddle that line quite well. Some of it's fairly direct. Some of it is obviously couched in metaphor and imagery and so on. Mm-hmm. But there's just, I don't know, it's, it's the same with any artist that connects with you, I guess. Yes. I can't really put my finger on why it particularly works for me. Mm-hmm. She is one of those artists, and I, I think as music fans, we all have artists who, when they connect, it feels like they are just talking directly to you. Yes, yes. Um, and I very much get that with Judy Sill and her lyrics. And again, her use of language and her, you know, the, the way she rhymes, you know, her lyrics, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it just clicks, it works for me, and it's, you know, I'm willing to put the work in to get what I am able to get 
from her lyrics, whereas other artists, maybe not so much. No names mentioned here. <coughs> Bob Dylan. <laughs> oh, 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 but, oh um, hang on. Ben, Ben. <laughs> oh, but, just, uh, look, you know yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I can't put my finger on it exactly, Morris. It just, it works for me, and uh, her lyrics are beautiful. I would suggest that sincerity is a big key factor in this. And you listen to yes. it, and you know that she believes, regardless of where you stand on you know, theology or anything that she's singing about, she never gets saccharine, which a lot of stuff that yes. sort of has a bit of a theological bent can get. You know, she's no, what was her name, Amy Grant? Who, who was, it? was she the, the singer in the 80s? She, she's nothing like that. Yeah, yeah, I know. With Judy, it's genuine. She's not trying to be clever and she's not trying to be ornate and flowery for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. She's using, you know, the words to uh, to serve the songs, and yes. the, the meaning and the emotion that she's, she's trying to get across. And I think that's really evident in her stuff. It's not cocky and it's not, look how clever I am, look how well read I am, right. even though she obviously is. <laughs> but it's just, yeah, it's, well, it's perfect. All of her music and lyrics yes. are perfect. So let's talk a little bit about her history in terms of the music. So Judy was the first artist to be signed to David Geffen's Asylum Records label. And I think high hopes were held for her. But apart from a little bit of previous moderate success as a songwriter for the Turtles, who she'd written her song Lady O. Crescent moon is laying at your feet With hope that's made of sand You don't think you can But you've held it all in your hands I've been trying hard to keep from meeting you But from the start Which she ended up recording herself and the song Jesus was a crossmaker, which she also recorded for herself, but she gave to the Hollies and was later as well covered by Warren Zevon. She I think, uh, didn't Graham Nash produce that yes. particular track? Yes, he did. Yeah. Most of the album was recorded uh, or produced, I should say, by a guy called Henry Louis. I don't know much mm-hmm. else about him, but yes, I believe that one song was uh, recorded by Graham Nash. Possibly, uh, you know, his name was going to mean something and uh, he was going to get the song yeah. across. I don't know that it was a complete think, and utter yeah. total flop, but she certainly did. It, it was a single, wasn't it? It was released as a single as well, I, I believe. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, that'd be something pretty valuable to have in your collection, an original 45. I'm sure, yeah. Jesus yeah. was a crossmaker. So, but she didn't really appear to make much of a dent at the time. And she was, I, I guess, by association, she was you know, considered as part of that West Coast songwriter type of click and i know you've gone and mentioned that right i mean you've already gone and mentioned that you know you tend to see her more in the psychedelic vein rather than the singer songwriter vein and to be honest i don't know if she even fits into that she's kind of she's a little of both but not really either no that makes sense 100 percent. no i agree with you 100 percent. it just seemed to be like an easy thing to be able to slip her in with you know the eagles and linda ronstadt and jackson brown yet her music was in a lot of ways quite different to theirs or anyone's you know to be lumped into that group or in a psychedelic group but it's interesting as you say that someone like uh, andy partridge who really if there was any contemporary songwriter who i think you know the the music of Judy influenced what he does. Even though on the surface sort of thing, XTC are very different from Judy Silk. We've gone and spoken before, I think, about Andy Partridge's clever use of chord structures and he goes places 
that you don't expect. And the same can be yes. said of Judy Sell. Part of that singer-songwriter club, and yet not. Her lyrics were often maybe not too abstract, but I, I, I don't know what the word really is that we could use. It's not, as we've already gone and studied, not straight-out Bible-thumping. Her songs no. were intricate, yet never too orchestrated or over-arranged to be out of fashion. It wasn't rock or conventional pop, but it also wasn't the orchestration of someone like Burt Bacharach. And you sort of wonder, Burt Bacharach was you know, considered you know, too, too schmaltzy maybe for the pop crowd, but nowadays I think because of the cleverness of his orchestration, people are sort of mm-hmm. like starting to look and think, well, actually, he had something there. I, I think um, with, with Judy, she uh, apparently she was very, very uh, knowledgeable and influenced by classical music, and particularly Bach, right. Bach in her kind of, you know, in her song structures, they're almost kind of mathematical in a way. Mm. They, um, they're very, uh, you can, her songs are almost like diamonds. Everything fits perfectly, Every you know, every facet of the, the the diamond the jewel is uh, is there in the correct place and that that goes for her you know her arrangements and her chord structures and the, the lyrics as well they just fit together perfectly you, you know how we, we often sort of say well yeah this artist combines this style and that style but they'll be on separate songs but you'll find yeah as i've got a couple yes. of instances i want to mention where it starts out as musically it'll start out as a country song and then she does some of the really strange sort of Bach type of thing yes. or, or or as, as I've gone and made a note I don't know if anyone mentioned this or I came up with it myself I can't remember but I've got a note here that I thought a, a good comparison would be Haydn with a Stetson you, yes got, <laughs> just a, yeah. a classical a Baroque composer with the clip clop Gene Autry feel. Well, apparently she was a big fan of that kind of Hollywood country music, you know, Sons of the Pioneers and things like that. Mm, mm. Um, and you can absolutely see that. And like you say, the clip-clop thing, the, the number of songs on these two albums where there's obviously someone there with some coconut shells doing the... Uh, <laughs> and this is before doing the, you know, the, and the Holy Grail. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, as you say, it all fits. It all works. And mm. even though her songs move from one style into another, they slip into one style and then back out again. And it makes perfect sense. They're, they're, you know, they're not clunky and awkward. It's it's perfect. Perfect is a word I think I'm probably going to come back to quite a lot. Here. Oh, I, I find myself using it a, a lot about her music. So yeah. generally in a lot of the stuff that I've read online, reviews from old magazines, the consensus seems to be that more people thought that the second album, Heart Food, was the better of the two albums. I prefer the first album as a whole, but the two best songs, and I'm sure you'll probably know what they are, the two best songs Uh, in the catalogue are from Heart Food. But as an overall album, I tend to think the first album is a better album. But, I mean, you know, really, we're talking about um, perfect and a little fraction under perfect. You know, let's not not quibble. I tend to think of them uh, as a whole, really. I I find it difficult to separate the two. Right. I think maybe the first album is a a, a tiny bit more playful. Mm Mm-hmm. And the second one is perhaps a little bit more serious and sort of reverent. But, right, um, right, I'd say that. Th- there's not much in it, really. Right. I-, I think maybe her lyric writing on the-, the second album is possibly a little denser as well. Yes, yes. Certainly um, in, uh, certainly in the couple of songs that I have as, uh, as examples. Yeah. That, that... I, I, yeah, I can guess which two they're going to be as well. Oh, yeah, so. oh, yeah. 
So, look, for, okay, so let's talk about a few of the songs in particular so the listeners can get a feel for, well, let's be specific. From the first album, the most famous song that I've already mentioned by name is Jesus Was a Crossmaker. Sweet silver angels over the sea Please come down, fly and low for me One time I trusted a stranger Cause I heard his sweet song And it was gently enticing me Though there was something wrong But when I turned He was gone Blinding me his song remains Reminding me he Now, and you, you know who this was written about, right? I, I do, but you tell the story, please. Well, uh, there's uh, one of the live recordings uh, where she, she plays this. She talks about how she was uh, seeing this guy, and it turned out that um, he wasn't very nice, and he was a bandit and a heartbreaker. Uh, and she had this moment of revelation where she realized bandit and heartbreaker rhymes with, but Jesus was the crossmaker. And the song kind of came out of that. And it was essentially, it was uh, J.D. Souther, who was, uh, he wasn't a member of the Eagles, was he? But he was he part was. of their... Uh... Wasn't he a member of the oh, Eagles? Oh, he was. Yeah, yeah, he was a member of the I Eagles. Thought, I know he wrote some uh, songs of theirs, and I know he recorded a bunch of stuff on his own. Maybe he was on some LPs, but not all of them. Uh. I don't know. I, I, I'll have to do my Eagles research. But uh, he, ha- he had a brief and torrid affair with Judy, apparently. Apparently, but he was a notorious womanizer and he essentially broke her heart mm, mm. Uh, and legend has it that uh, after Judy had written this song she went round to his house knocked, knocked on his door at about 7 in the morning woke him up and went in and sat on his bed with her guitar and just said hey this is for you and played it to him <laughs> it's for you you asshole yeah so I, I can only American. imagine uh, I can only she imagine how asshole. he felt but I, I think what was interesting here, I mean because in, in a strange sort of way this is the least, well, maybe not the least religious song, but with a title like Jesus is a Crossmaker, you would have thought there would have been a religious allegorical bent here. And there's maybe like in the opening line there is, but apart from that, this is not really a religious song. It's as you say, even though she's cursing J.D. Souther out for what he did to her, she's saying, but even Jesus was a crossmaker. You know, even he did this yeah. terrible thing, but he wasn't beyond redemption. So who knows, maybe even you, J.D. Saudi, you're not beyond redemption. You know, so it, I don't know, is it a backhanded compliment or, or it's like, well, you broke my heart, you prick, but you, know, you have merit. Well, it's like, um, like, well, like all her songs, it kind of have, it has these, uh, this pull between, you know, the spiritual and the pure, and the kind of earthbound and um, not so pure. The uh, you know, there's a, a line in here: desire dividing me. Mm. So she's you know split between her attraction for him and her uh, you know her attraction to spirituality and that purity. Okay. And silver silver angels. Uh, you know that phrase that, crops up in a lot of her songs. That, well, that, that crops up in this. That was the one so line that I thought that was theologically related. You know, she, yeah. when she says, "Sweet silver angels over the sea, please come down flying low for me." So you know. Well, th- this is it. She's, she's appealing I'm, to uh, the spiritual to kind of save her in a way from. Come down. This, I live you know, this. I live here on Earth. I, I, yeah, I'm come not... and save me from this swarthy womanizer. Yeah. And I, I love how she puts it. You know, she sings, One time I trusted a stranger because I heard his sweet song and it was gently enticing me, though there was something wrong. But when I heard yep. he was gone. These are simple, yep. simple words and yet not a single word out of place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautiful. 
and the, the melody as well the way she sings that over the music it's tough to pick a favorite song with judy sill but uh, there's maybe two or three songs which i would put in equal first place oh holy moly uh, and i i think this is one of them i do really really love this hide in me i flee desire divide in me he's a bandit and a heartbreaker but jesus with a cross maker yeah amazing mm-hmm. amazing and it's we, we should say it's actually for judy this is actually quite an upbeat almost country rockish kind of song right so despite the fact it's about heartbreak and her being wronged it is still an upbeat and catchy kind of number again it's that kind of dichotomy between you know the dark and light the up and down you know Mm-hmm. Actually, one little side thing I wanted to make a mention of. I don't know really how relevant. It's just just a little story on the um, album credits. It said that there were a couple of backup singers. I think specifically on this song. I don't know about the rest of the album, but there were Clyde King and Vanetta Fields. Now, if you're a fan of music of you know, the seventies, those names are no strangers to you. And you know, Vanetta Fields was one of the Iquettes, but ended up doing so much session work over the sixties mm-hmm. uh, and seventies. You've gone away. <laughs> She came to live in Australia in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. I think, you know, she'd come here on a tour with Boz Skaggs and loved it so much she just decided to live here. And she lived here in Melbourne and I was very, very privileged in the mid-80s to see her many times. She had a band called Vanetta's Taxi and I even you know, had the gall to go up and ask her if I could have singing lessons with her, which I think I did. <laughs> I actually did have a couple of lessons with her, but she went off with John Farnham, you know, was never around. Um, I sent her an email. It's been years since I'd had any contact with her. I didn't expect her to remember yeah. me. But I sent her an email saying, look, I do this podcast and we're going to be talking about Judy Sill and I'd love it if I could record like a quick chat to ask what your memories of the session. And this is a woman who'd done thousands of sessions. She said, I'm sorry, I have no recollection of who Judy Sill is. Oh, you sort of got to goodness. wonder about... It's, it's no indictment on her, you know, because I'm sure she yeah. did hundreds and hundreds of sessions. But you just sort of got to wonder how the music industry worked. You know, really, I mean, probably for many of the other players, she was just, Judy Sill was just... It was yeah, another, another gig. It was it? just another yeah. gig. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, yeah. oh, that would have been... It would have been so wonderful if she'd had any wow. memory at all. But, it's uh, good you uh, you brought that up because um, that reminded me of something I, I was going to mention. Again, throughout her her uh, two LPs, mm-hmm. there's a very strong gospel influence as well, isn't there? Sure is, um, yeah. And, and that's really noticeable on uh, this particular track. On the two-CD set that I bought, which, as I said, was called Abracadabra, but, you know, it's basically those yeah. two albums. There's a few live songs. I think she's doing a set as a support for, oh, I can't remember, is that Crosby, Stills and Nash? I think about Crosby, Stills and Nash. And she's doing the song Enchanted Sky Machines. Mm-hmm. But the first three or four minutes before she actually gets into the song, it's just her riffing in a gospel way on the yes, piano. Yes, yeah. And I've thing, heard that recording, yeah. And you, you listen to this and you think, you know, I mean, we, we know her as this incredible songwriter with this amazing backstory, but what comes through in this recording particular, and particularly, I should say, is that she was really an amazing musician. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And she, I mean, she was pretty much self-taught, wasn't she? Well, look, I mean, certainly a lot of Apart what she from, did in prison yeah. would have been, would have yeah. been self-taught, but I think she might have actually had some tuition. I believe when she was under 10 years old and she was hanging out, I think her father owned a bar and she yes, was always right. playing yeah. the piano in the bar. I don't know if she had tuition there or she was picking up things by herself. So truth be known, I don't really know. But for the Heart Food album, she wrote a lot of the orchestrations. Now, Do you know, I was going to mention that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, for to do that with no training at all would have been just incredible, absolutely amazing. But it doesn't take anything away if I if I find out that you know she had some formal training because yeah, yeah. obviously she hadn't done she a degree obviously had the in natural it or talent and aptitude for it. So anyway, yeah. I, I was reading um, in the um, there's a CD which uh, is essentially a, a kind of posthumous completion of her third unreleased LP. Mm-hmm. Uh, called Dreams Come True, which uh, Jim O'Rourke uh, of you know Sonic Youth and Jim O'Rourke fame, yes. Wilco fame as well, I guess. Yes, that's right. He uh, sort of produced and sort of finished the LP in a sense, and that comes with a, a, an excellent booklet, which is kind of an oral history from uh, people and friends who knew her. Uh, and in that booklet, one of the producers of Heart Food talks about when Judy came in to do the orchestrations and how you know he'd been doing this kind of thing for thirty years. And he'd never seen anybody come in and just pick up the baton and do it straight away with no guidance, with no nobody saying, actually, maybe that won't quite work. Um, <laughs> she, she had it off, you know, she had it uh, down pat straight away. So, yeah, she, you know, she had that raw talent, definitely. Well, not even raw talent, that developed talent. She was, it's almost, um, I, again, I, I find this with a lot of musicians I like, who I feel like they speak to me directly. It's almost like they're just channeling something from somewhere else. Yes. It's so natural and effortless. And she kind of had that in spades, I think. I, I imagine as well that music really, like for her, well, Jesus was her saviour, but you know, music was her saviour. This is what yeah. was keeping her going in prison and what kept her on, well, not, maybe not the straight and narrow, but it kept her from robbing petrol stations after she, after she got out. But she uh, really desperately, you know, from all that I've read, wanted to be successful. And it was heartbreaking to her that she didn't get to be, you know, Geffen t- started out as her saver and then she yeah. sort of accused him of well, that's, ignoring yeah. her. But it was, it was that, why- that determination to be musically successful but artistically successful at the same yes. time that probably pushed her to great heights with arranging and composing and her own musicianship. Well, apparently she was a, a very strong-willed character and um, apparently quite egotistical We've read those, as well. Yeah, read those yeah. stories, yeah. So the fact that she decided she was going to be a great songwriter and, you know, she was. Yes, indeed. Okay, so I've got to mention something there about, you know, her chops as a pianist and that's what she focused a mm-hmm. lot on but a lot of these songs actually have her on the guitar and I, i'm thinking here like when you listen to um her guitar work and especially like when you go to the first song on the first album's crayon angels Plane. 
and her guitar picking is very crisp and even though in a way it's not stylistically like Nick Drake but the thing that she has in common with Nick Drake is he was a very precise picker and you hear every note there's nothing that's muddled together yeah. it's it's that sort of folksy yet precise sort of approach attack of the acoustic guitar and I think once again she was her own person and yet I think Nick Drake in a way is a good comparison is it do you see that or is there someone else who I don't know a good comparison no I, I I can see that definitely I think uh, they were good parallel I'll, I'll be honest I think Judy Seal was the more talented songwriter um, but I think they, they both had certain uh, or similar preoccupations and as you say certainly on, on an acoustic guitar I thought yeah I think that's a good comparison I think again like I was saying earlier with, with Judy her stuff is very precise be it her acoustic guitar playing her piano playing it all just it meshes it fits perfectly mm. it's she must have put a lot of thought into writing it but again it kind of it feels almost um, what's the word instinctual it just makes perfect sense but to get to that point it's, it, it is you instinctual, know. but it sounds like it's worked on without being laboured over. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. She, That's what yeah, I was getting at. She's, yeah. yeah, she's not spent like hundreds and hundreds of hours to make something perfect. She knows what she wants, and yet she also probably knows what she doesn't want. She, it's not like, yes. oh yeah, well, the, this chord structure, this will do. It's not, I want this very precise sound, but she knows what she wants, and she's thought about it, but hasn't spent like hundreds and hundreds of hours like some songwriters could actually do. Yeah. I think the fact that she she managed, you know, she achieves what she wants with a kind of minimum of fuss yep. makes it sound perfect, mm-hmm. you know, because she is doing exactly as she, you know as she wants as mm. she wants it to sound. So it's yeah. So I want to actually start talking a bit about one of my two favourite songs from the Heart Food album, and I'm taking a very strong guess based on previous Facebook conversations that this may be your favourite song from the two albums. Tell me. I'm wrong, but I want to talk a bit about the kiss. strange blend of country and baroque musical stylings on the albums and possibly the best example that proves out and out that Judy Sill was a fan of Bach as you've already gone and mentioned by that yeah. is 
the kiss. Now, quite simply, there's a beauty to this song that I think few other songwriters are able to match, and which is why what we were talking about before, about people like Jackson Brown and Warren Zevon, you know, who might have been fine songwriters in their own right, but really they're not in her league. They could not do what she did. If she all she'd ever done was write this one song, then that'd be reason to bow down at her feet. This is just... I'll, um, a full disclosure here, Morris. I think this is possibly one of the most well it's possibly the most beautiful piece of music most beautiful song ever written it's uh, I find it difficult to talk about because words just can't do this justice and it's Mm. I find it to be such an emotionally affecting song Mm. it's um, it's just absolutely beautiful and you know people say things like that with you know hyperbole but genuinely nothing even comes close to this as far as I'm concerned as you're right words can't necessarily do a song like this just as you just have to be able to listen to it but I think it's probably I want to be able to stop but I I basically want to be able to say about some of the things that it made me think because I listened to it and there were things that came into my head like even from you know the first time I heard it and every time I hear it I think a little bit more and one of the things that particular we've gone and mentioned Bach and it'd be all too easy to say well you know as a casual listener, yeah, oh yeah, this sounds like sounds like Bach. But specifically, this reminds me, even though it's not melodically, it's, she's not riffing on the melody, but it sort of does remind me of a very famous piece that Bach wrote for the harpsichord, uh, or Concerto Number no. Five for harpsichord. And you'd know this piece of music is very, very famous, and it's used in particular. I remember because watch I only just watched this again very recently in Woody Allen's film Hannah and Her Sisters, and it's during one of the bits where Michael Caine is mentally undressing Barbara Hershey. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember the music in in the film or in that bit. No, off, no, I remember the scene. I can't remember the music off right. the top of my head. If, I'm if, afraid. If, you know what? If you heard it, I'll, I'll pop it on. I'll pop it on your uh, on your page. But you, you'd know this yeah. for sure. But it, it sort of reminded me, maybe less so for the melody, but certainly for the elegance that this song evokes and the elegance of that harpsichord concerto. Really, in the end, I mean, the, the lyrics here are beautiful, and I'll sort of talk about that in a second, but I, I just want to say that she could sing the phone book. I know we've often gone and said yeah. that, people have gone and said that about Van Morrison, but and I, don't, I don't even necessarily think that she's got necessarily the most exquisite voice that I've heard, although it is a beautiful voice. It, it's, she has got a songwriter's singing voice as opposed to the voice of someone who singing is what they do. It's like, okay, this is my song, this is how I want to interpret it, and it's still beautiful but it's a different sort of voice if that makes any sense i think she has um a a real purity to her voice yes and you can kind of she reminds me in a lot of ways and i'm surprised we haven't mentioned this up to this point but she reminds me in a lot of ways of karen carpenter i have that i have a note written here karen carpenter yeah there we go but there's a, there's a warmth to her voice, but there's also a, a kind of melancholy there, which is you know difficult to to kind of pick apart and put your finger on. But um, 
it, her voice. <laughs> How do I phrase this? It, her voice isn't lived in, but mm. you, you can kind of, again, knowing her backstory and know the life that she's led, mm. you can kind of detect that in her voice. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, she. I mean, but this yeah. comes back down to what we were talking about before with sincerity. She doesn't have the gargly, gravelled voice of someone like Tom Waits, who's lived a hard life on the road or something like that. But mm. she does sound. I don't know. Weary. Well, it's, weary isn't the word, but um, world weary, perhaps. Yeah. It's uh, again, as we were saying earlier, it's like her how she plays the guitar and the piano. It's perfect for what she's trying to do and what she's trying to put across. She's not putting like a million notes in. Where no, it's, it's not those. that horrible warbling, as you say. It's uh, you know she's. Her voice serves the song. So, so we, ha- we haven't even touched on the lyrics yet. And I, I, once again, I know that, you know, sometimes beauty just needs to be experienced without having mm-hmm. to sort of talk about it. But, you know, hell, this is a podcast. So we've got to talk. Uh, but, okay, so she has lyrics like, And once a crystal chair appeared while I was sleeping and called my name. And when they came down nearer, saying dying is done, then a new song was sung until somewhere we breathed as one. Now, if you're of a Christian religious band, I'm sure you take something from this. But the beauty of Cell is how she can, we can still take a, a, a regular sort of secular poetic mm-hmm. point of view. Uh, this could be you know, a lyric about someone who's been despondent in their life and found a new hope. And this really sort of points like a couple of songs a couple of other songs in her repertoire that are probably autobiographical she's lived this hard life and yet she still remained hopeful at least while her recording was on because really she unfortunately came to a tragic few years after this album was recorded but we'll get to that unfortunately here unfortunately yes this probably explains why these songs work more than a lot of pop music and will appeal to folks who aren't necessarily looking for the religious angle because once again the sincerity and it's it's not overtly religious i mean there's nothing wrong with that if they were but i just like the fact that you know, as someone who's not sort of following a christian theological bent that yeah. i can get something out of songs like this well it's again it's interesting about judy in that obviously religion and spirituality were huge things to her and she spent a lot of her life exploring that and writing about it but yes. i don't know if she was necessarily a christian or a believed particularly in any how do i put this it wasn't really the religious aspect it was more the spiritual aspect that she was interested in right and you know the two of the main themes that go through all her work are hope and faith yep which are uh, you know again that you know that's kind of fundamental aspects of christianity aren't they but and again because she uses a lot of um christian imagery yep but it's not i don't know it's you, and again, it's the song, the fact that this song is called The Kiss, and she's comparing the idea of, you know, some kind of uh, retribution or religious kind of ecstasy almost. Yes. Um, with the physical act of a kiss, mm-hmm. the sweet communion of a kiss, just that line. Right. So, you know, she's already kind of straddling that divide between religion and spirituality, and again, the, the kind of earthbound physical thing, you know, the fact that mm. we are. We're meat and bone trapped in these bodies, even though we might be uh, looking to, uh, you know, to sort of transcend that somehow. Okay, so based on what you're saying there, and I, I tend to agree with this, it seems that what her angle was, 
you know, she possibly was, you know, well, as you say, spiritual. If we define religious as being part of organized religion, like you know, going to a church yeah. or or you know, going to some house of worship. No, I don't think that was her thing. But did she believe in a deity and did she believe in Jesus as a concept or as a person? Then yes, I do think that she did, without necessarily having to roll up to church on Sunday morning. The, yeah, hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, I think so. I think that was uh, that was where she was coming from. Yeah, and, and then you know, like she did have other songs in her repertoire uh, on on both albums. So there's songs we've already kind of mentioned the cowboy aspect. So she's going and casting in songs like uh, the archetypal man uh, and phantom cowboy and ridge rider uh, and soldier of the heart. Yeah, soldier of the heart. There's a rugged yeah. road. She's gone and sort of written this whole thing. She's gone and combined the story of Jesus with maybe you know a John Wayne movie. Uh, yeah, it's just, almost it, the man with no name, isn't it? Or something. Well, yeah, yeah. She, he's he's yeah. the lone or, or Clint Eastwood. You know, he's he's the yeah. lone rider. He's out there. He's got his mission. He has no friends. He has no gal waiting for him. He's just there. He needs but to he's be on where, that where people he's need on him. that path to uh, exactly. He's on that path to redemption or salvation, and he's going to look out for people on his way. And um, again, a, a lot of her songs are about the, the you know the faith that she will have in in him doing that, and the hope that he will be able to see her through or see himself through and get to where he needs to be. There's uh, which song I can't remember. We'll come to it in a moment. There, but it's one of the uh, one of the songs featuring that kind of character. Yes. Where she says he he has faith, not in any one or anything specifically. Mm-hmm. You know, the faith is going to guide him through, even though he doesn't subscribe to. Gosh, I can't remember which song it is. I'll find it. We'll we'll get there. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the archetypal man. Maybe that'll um, bring something to you. it interesting i sort of almost find it like a contradiction because the archetypal man would imply someone who is like an ideal or like everyone else and yet her jesus character in the archetypal man is very much not like anyone else but i mean look there are lyrics in there which i don't pretend to understand i'm not sure what fleeter even than mercury but Mm -hmm. he flies inside the world inside the walls he calls his own you listen to this and you think, well, I'm listening to her voice. And this is this is one of those clip-clop songs uh, yes, that, sort yeah. of, that sort of get into that Bach territory once you get to, well, not, it's not quite a chorus, but you get to that mid-section. And strangely enough, I wonder whether Willie Nelson would sing this. I can sort of imagine that he would have a good time with this song. It's, it's almost got that kind of sort of swing to it that I could see Willie really doing it justice and you know, what, you know what I mean the other name that came to me uh, was um, can't remember what the name of their big piece was but they were like a trio uh, Lambert Hendrickson Ross and it's only because when she does that scat thing 
It sort of reminded me of yes, them. You, yep, you yep. know their music. If you, do you know who I'm talking about? I don't, but I know the kind of thing that you mean. I, uh, I, I yes. can't remember the name of like any of their big pieces, but I, I just remember the name and I got their tunes in my head and you'd know it if you heard it. Uh, but it's that, that scat thing. I'm sure it's influenced by that. Not that I'm saying that they were the only people ever to do uh, <laughs> scat in a yeah. pop sort of vein, but it really touches of that to me. And I think from, uh, again, an interesting song, The Archetypal Man, from a musical point of view, because it's it's got kind of Baroque strings in there. It's got some yes. pedal steel guitar. Um, the, the classical influence is obvious in there as well. And like you say, the, the coconut clip-clop sounds, you know, on paper, it sounds like it would be a mess, but it's, it's perfect. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, really, that's the whole story of her musical career. Everything yeah. that on paper should not work. You know, she's doing songs with a spiritual bent for a pop audience. Uh, she's combining Bach and clip clop, you know, Bach and Gene Autry. Yeah. You know, what, what <laughs> the hell? She, gets what away with it. she, well, artistically, she got away with it. And, but I mean, look, the nice thing is, you know, people like yourself and myself are catching on. You know, you're getting uh, other songwriters who are singing her praises and, People will, you know, okay, so she'll never be the household name and more's the pity. But there are enough people out there to make sure that she's far from being forgotten about. Yeah. Really, you know, there, there are a lot of people who have had a, maybe not even had a moment in the sun and came up with probably some wonderful music and no one remembers. At least, you know, Judy Sill is being remembered. I mean, there was that, and you had your BBC program, you know, I think uh, September last year that, yeah. A half-hour documentary. So, you know, there are people sort of still bringing her up in uh, the popular media forms. I think the cult is growing, uh, definitely. Mm. The cult definitely. of Judy. Now we've got to get the cult yeah. of Bill going. The cult of Bill? Bill Faye. Yeah, well, yeah, well I, I think that's growing as well. Maybe not quite as much a, uh, an exponential rate as Judy, but mm. again, you know, he's more well-known than... Uh, than he was five, six years ago. People are more aware. So, absolutely. I guess you know the cream rises to the top, Morris. Sometimes, it's, unfortunately, <laughs> it takes thirty or forty years, mm. but um, it does happen. Well, well hopefully, uh, Bill will get a few more people in his lifetime. Um, I'm, I hope I, so. Yeah. But we'll, we'll we'll talk about that some other show, no doubt, because he has a new album out, and um, for the listening audience out there, both uh, Sticky and myself are immensely excited about that. Mm -hmm. I have one more song that I wanted to sort of like cover in any sort of description, but was there anything else that you sort of wanted to cover? I, I, the song I'm going to cover, I know that you'll have plenty to say about, but is there yeah. anything else that um, you wanted to bring up? Um, I don't think so, really. I mean, we kind of touched on the uh, the kind of themes that go through her, her songs, the imagery and the uh, the lone vigilante. Well, not, oh, I haven't said that. She has a song called The Vigilante. Oh, but she does. The, the sort of See the vigilante watching in the I always find him where his heart is He's fighting the good fight He smells the scent of trouble And prepares to leave He's got his eyes on the horizon Reaching higher He's got his eyes on the horizon His boots on his feet Lonesome pioneer type character And it's you know, it's all about, uh, again, we've touched on this, but it's about the darkness and the light. It's about yearning for what's beyond and connecting with that, whilst at the same time embracing the fact that we are just, you know, we're flesh and blood. 
You know how when you're real depressed and you see everything comes to nothing? Well, I thought, maybe I better take a different approach and write a song instead of directed at people that would somehow musically induce God into giving us all a break. Because I was getting a little fed up by this point. Um, but I can't remember which one. It'll probably come to me in a moment. Here we go. It's, lo- it's loping along through the cosmos, which is, right. I believe, was on the first album. Yes. Loping along through the cosmos And sideways I slide through the square I'm hoping so hard for a kiss from God Miss the sweet love of the year. Yeah, the sentiment of the song, uh, and again, uh, this kind of, I think, sums up her uh, her outlook. Uh, so keep on moving, or stay by my side. Either way, I'll tell you a secret I've never revealed. However, we are is okay. So you know, strive for what's beyond, but at the same time, acceptance of what we are. Yes. All right. I, I think I know what song we're going to talk about. But. All right. And, and in a way, it's fitting that, you know, apart from these sort of like, I don't know, if you want to call it jokey, 30 or 40 seconds of outro music on the second album, really, it mm-hmm. comes down to, everything comes down to the final track on the second album on Heart Food, a song called The Donor. song that I, I really have to say I think she may have been listening to Brian Wilson's and Van Dyke Park's composition The Surf's Up that um, we sh- yeah I mean we, we should have mentioned as well that, that there's a definite comparison between Brian Wilson and Judy Sill with her uh, you know her, her approach to orchestration and, and right. so on right yeah absolutely absolutely um, so if Jesus was a crossmaker was autobiographical then I think the same could be said of the donor. But this time the mirror is facing Judy herself. It's not on J.D. Mm-hmm. Souther. Yeah. I've, I've often said that there's a distinction between great song lyrics and poetry, and, and really one shouldn't be confused for the other. In this case, the, uh, of the donor, I think Judy was definitely aiming for something in a poetic vein and still managed to make it work as a great songwriting lyric as a great lyric yeah i would agree yeah Uh, and like the kiss which we discussed earlier she's created something so profoundly beautiful that once again words can't do it justice Come a-chime in my 
that we're going to give it a crack. <laughs> okay, so this is a, a long song going for about eight minutes, and it's almost two and a half minutes before Judy actually sings any real lyrics. Uh, the music up until that point is very layered. Uh, we get the one motif played over and over again with more instrument instrumentation added each time. Uh, you you mm-hmm. get your, your piano, the vibraphone, the timpani, uh, and the multi-tracked harmony vocals, which keep on singing uh, the, the Latin phrase, Kyrie Elysion. I'm not sure if that's pronounced right. My, my, I think uh, that's about right, yeah. Um, which I didn't know what meant. I looked it up and it was Lord Have Mercy. And I don't even know whether James Brown was an influence on this album at all. Um, <laughs> I don't know. The best way for me to listen to it, I don't know about you, but this is a headphone song. This is something yes. you just want to, in the dark, headphones on, play it up, and you just get something you, you get the shivers out of it i mean look any way you can listen to it is fine listen to it through a transistor radio fine but for me the most profound way is through the headphones she'd been quoted and i mentioned this earlier on in the show she'd been quoted as saying out of the mud a lotus grows which i understand is a buddhist philosophy maybe our lovely mm-hmm. see here colleague wendy can clarify that and I think that this explains the donor. She sings, I'll chase them to the bottom till I finally caught them. Dreams fall deep. This song, it's, it's about the murky depths of her own life and all she'd lived through. Uh, and, you know, some of it by choice. And it really, as we've gone and read on some websites, she was no angel. All she was prepared to go through for the sake of bringing beautiful music and art to the world. She was no fantasist she wanted success but didn't see why it should compromise art this song it more i think than anything else except for maybe the kiss sounds as it's delivered as a prayer and it's truly where her classical training held her in good stead this is the one with the orchestration i mean well there are other songs with orchestration but i think this is the one where it's brought to the best effect it's a song that on the surface sounds simple it's you know we don't have millions of chords we don't have uh, any sort of complex playing here but as someone who appreciates arrangement and i listen to what she's doing here and it's just absolutely astounds me there's it, it sounds simple and yet it's not it's super complex isn't it i, I can't even imagine how she would have begun to kind of put this together it's um it, it's astonishing and, and, and like you say all the more so because it sounds so simple and effortless yeah and yeah it's yeah it, it's it's amazing it really is but yeah no really suffice to say that this song is the pinnacle of everything that i think she'd done and if she walked away from those two albums i mean obviously disappointed lack of commercial success but i can't imagine that she walked away from this record and thought gee i could have done better if i'd have been a songwriter and i'd have written something half as good as this song i'd have been patting myself on the back forever more this is you know i mean you you went and said before that you know the kiss was probably the most beautiful song you've ever heard i'd be splitting hairs between you know the kiss and the donor as you know two of the most beautiful songs i've ever heard yeah i can understand that and you know 
to what you were saying that most musicians artists go their entire career without writing a song that's even half as uh, as, as affecting as beautiful and as complex and, and yet simple as this um it's it's interesting it's as you say it's, it's obviously a very personal song mm. but the lyrics are it's quite uh, lyrically it's quite dense and obtuse compared to some of the, her other uh, material and yet yeah. i think it's quite understandable you, you yes it's, that, it's, that's yeah yeah it's not something that you walk away and think i have not a clue what any of this means if you if you sit and you listen you, know, you might take like you know two or three listens you think okay i get where she's going with this and that's why i sort of say i think it was very autobiographical she's talking about how she's plumbed the depths of her life uh, and, and she's yeah. had it very very difficult it, it doesn't sort of end up being like a, a song but tomorrow's a new day and i'm going to reach out and grab the day and make the best of it she but she, it, as i said this sounds like a prayer she's singing kyrie eleison it sounds more french than latin uh but you know lord have mercy she's saying i've reached these depths lord have mercy on me please favor me kindly that's how i read it yeah. anyway yeah no i think so i think just uh, the tone of the song as well kind of you know gets that across communicates that yes even you know even if you're not paying attention to the lyrics when you listen that you know there's such a sense of uh, yearning and uh, melancholy and mm. just oh god yeah context <laughs> context is a lot absolutely yeah, yeah. yes uh, and the, the multi-tracked vocals yeah again that's something we, we should have mentioned before a number of her songs the kiss as well her, uh, her multi-track vocals on that just absolutely sublime you know uh and this kind of even more so more uh, layers you know well i think these are two songs which if someone were to come to me and say i don't understand why you're passionate about music so much explain to me show me give me a reason why you love music so much and i would say because the kiss gives me the chills because the donor makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up listen to this and tell me it doesn't move you. And yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people, it won't be stylistically their bag. They won't keep coming back yeah. to it. Really, I mean, you and I are fans of things which seem a million miles away from this. And yet we both still come to this and appreciate it. I, I, I don't find it a contradiction that I can listen to Ace of Spades and then I can you know, a few minutes later listen to The Kiss and still be moved and, and find something you know, hugely wonderful in both. It's uh, it's interesting. I, I've we've talked about this before, Morris, but um, I've always felt that feeling is a lot more important than technique. Yes. Um, and despite the fact that Judy Sill was, you know, a super accomplished and talented musician, arranger, songwriter, it's genuine. The feeling, the emotion is there. Mm. Um, and it, if if you can't get that from this music, then um, check your pulse. Yeah, I, I've got to be honest, I kind of feel sorry for you that, you, you you know, you can't see the beauty in this. You know, this is what makes life worth living, this kind of thing, you know? Oh, yeah. So. Well, um, I think we've pretty much gone and covered all there is to say about these uh, two albums. And I hope that, you know, through our discussion and through the snippets of tracks that we've gone and played here, that you'll search out. Uh, either of those two albums, I think you can still get them. They're still in print. 
if you want to go get the physical medium, I mean, now that uh, vinyl is hip and in again, uh, I'd be interested to know whether there are uh, repressings of this on vinyl, but you know. Yeah, they're they're both currently available on uh, vinyl via okay. the uh, the fine fine label for men with beards, uh, who do a lot of uh, good reissues. Okay. They've reissued some of the uh, the big star LPs and various other things. So. Oh, nice. Um, not not difficult to track these records down at all. And okay. Do yourself a favour and go out and buy them. If if you only ever listen to one recommendation from me. <laughs> well, from both of us. It. Good lord! You know, right. I, I'd, I'd love, I'd love to know that this show actually sent someone out to search out an album, yeah. and I'd be proud if it were this, if these two. Ab- absolutely, yeah. Our, our mission is done if, uh, if, if that's the case. Mm. So, should we talk a little about um, Judy's kind of post? Well, the, oh, what happened to her after her recording career? Okay, yes, yeah, sure. So, well, the um, the story seems to be in that there's some confusion about this, but. It seems that uh, David Geffen fired her um, after some comments that uh, she had made, apparently on a, a radio interview or something that happened apparently in the UK when she was over here touring for mm. Heart Food, her second LP. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently for some time she'd been growing a little um, concerned and she was a little bit pissed off with the fact that she felt uh, Geffen wasn't giving her the publicity and pushing and marketing her in, in the way that she felt she should be. Yeah. She kind of felt that he was expending more of his energy with Eagles and, you know, his other uh, signings. Mm-hmm. So she made a comment. Um, again, it's depending on what you read and, you know, what research you do, it seems to uh, vary, but it seems to be something about his Geffen's homosexuality. Oh, yes. I and apparently she kind of outed him because interestingly again i, I was um i think somebody on that radio 4 program mentioned this but at this point in the early 70s people again weren't so open about their sexuality it was still something that you didn't really talk about um, and it, again interestingly as well judy was apparently openly bisexual mm-hmm. but yeah she, she made some kind of comment about uh, david geffen and um he apparently was not very happy about that, dropped her from the label, um, and that was it. Um, mm. So, and it, it gets a little foggy after that, I think, doesn't it? Well, she I, obviously I, I, she was. She'd been, she had back pain. Was she in a car accident or something? She was, um, yeah, apparently she was, I think, in two car accidents. Right. Um, and again, the, the, this is very telling about Judy, but um, a, according to her, uh, this is her self-mythologizing her story, but because um, she lived in uh, Hollywood, I think she had a house in North Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, the first accident she had, she was rear-ended by somebody, mm-hmm. um, and the, the guy that came, came and helped her out of the car, she maintains was Danny Kay. <laughs> <laughs> really, I, d- so, I had not heard yeah. that. Whether that was true or not, I don't know. Uh, as I say, she was uh, prone to a little bit of self-mythologizing. Um, but yeah, she, she had uh, a car accident, um, which affected her back. And she had some uh, some back pain and injury because of that. Um, apparently, she had two operations on her back uh, to try and help correct the problem. Both of them, which were botched and just made the problem worse. Mm-hmm. 
And because of her history of uh, narcotic abuse and obviously heroin, their doctors refused to prescribe her opiates. So she was taking painkillers which were having no effect. Um, and it seems that unfortunately she drifted back into, um, into using heroin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that continued for a number of years. And I don't know whether it was during this period or um, before this happened, just after she was dropped from Geffen, but she was obviously still making demos and recording for a possible third album, which, as I mentioned earlier, those um, those recordings surfaced about 10-odd years ago. So I, I don't know whether after that she was still putting ideas together or recording in some fashion. But yeah, it, it seems almost like she just dropped off the face of the earth. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, she died in uh, 79. She was found in her, um, her home in North Hollywood, apparently with the needle still hanging out of her arm. Yeah. Apparently the... Uh, say apparently here yeah, because... You know, all this kind of stuff is hearsay. Mm-hmm. There's no definitive account of this. But uh, her death certificate, it was ruled as suicide of cocaine codeine overdose, I think, something like that. But again, several people have, you know, there, there was no evidence. There was no suicide note. According to some people she was speaking with at the time, she was working on new music and she was feeling quite positive. So there, there were two camps. So there's a camp that maintains that it was a suicide and another camp that just seems to think that it was a terrible accident, yep. you know, with her uh, drug use and regulating that drug use, you know, it happens. It was, it was an accident. So I guess we'll never know. We'll never know what her intention was. But at, um, least, at least we're left with this beautiful back catalogue of, of uh, absolutely. music. We, we can absolutely. Ce- celebrate the beauty. But you know, This it, is it. It's, it's, it's always the case with uh, artists like this who die before their time that people tend to get wound up in the story because obviously it's an interesting story, but yes. she wasn't somebody who just died of a drug overdose at 35. She was somebody who created two of the most extraordinarily beautiful LPs you will ever hear. And, uh, you know, we should be celebrating that. And hopefully that's, you know, that's what we've done here today. So, But as we've already discussed, I guess as well, ugliness and beauty are all part of the same Absolutely. coin. You know, they're, Absolutely. They're, not, they're not two yeah. different entities. So that some of that ugliness dictated her work. As, uh, this is it. Who, who's to say she, she would have even recorded this or created this if she hadn't lived through what she had lived through, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Okay. So, um, on, on that very bright and cheerful note, <laughs> I'll quickly make mention of what we're going to be covering in uh, the next episode of Love That Album. So, next month, which will be uh, June, by my calculations, uh, episode 76, I'll be joined by the host of the all-time top 10 podcast, Mr. Ben Eisen. This has been a long time coming. I don't think I've had him on the show in a while, we're actually doing each other's programs over the uh, over a two-week period, so that'll be a nice, a little bit of concentrated Ben Eisen time. And this is an album we've discussed for a while about covering, and it's from uh, the band from New York City, I think formed in 1995, 1996, The Fountains of Wayne, and their second album called Utopia Parkway. So uh, immensely looking forward to uh, talking about that. I know that last year, I think it was, where the the Soda Jerker uh, podcast guys they interviewed Adam Schlesinger on uh, on their show, and really he's achieved a hell of a lot more than you know. I just sort of thought, well, he'd gone and written albums for the Fountains of Wayne, and you know, gone and 
done the song for that thing you do and you know maybe one or two other things but he's musically covered a lot of ground so uh, i'll uh, probably listen to that again for a bit of reference make a few notes but uh, I'd urge you to listen to the Soda Joker guys in general, but uh, search out the Adam Schlesinger uh, interview that they did. It was fascinating stuff. And also, I'd urge you to come back to Love That Album in June. So uh, Ben and I will discuss uh, the Fountains of Wayne and Utopia Parkway. And also, as well as listening to the main episodes of Love That Album, please also see fit to uh, listen to uh, the Eric Reanimator compilation series of episodes that come out alternate alternately is that the correct expression there <laughs> between uh, the uh, central episodes that i do and also uh, a final plug should be given in here while we have a captive audience hopefully they've not turned their phone off at this stage is that bernie and i do a monthly podcast called see here i've mentioned it on the show before don't make me beg you to listen to it don't make me get pathetic, but please listen to it because, you know, we come up with all sorts of funny little quips and japes, don't we, Bernie? Well, well, we try at least, yeah. Yes. <laughs> we and do. We're, we're normally pretty successful as well. well. We're, we're, yeah, normally we are. If you think that we're, we're boring as all get-go, then listen to it for the uh, masterful comments of the uh, pummeling princess, Wendy Freeman, and the uh, walking encyclopedia that is Tim Merrill. Because if, if we're boring as fuck... They will definitely entertain you. Absolutely. Yeah, give it a try, please. Please do. All right. Anyway, Bernie, thank you very, very much for coming back on the program. It sort of occurred to me that I think the the only other show that you've done where we covered Mark Eitzel and Bill Fay and now doing Judy Sill, and yet a lot of what you listen to tends to be more punk and more up tempo. And here we've gone and done. It's funny, isn't it? Covered yeah. a whole bunch of you know far more laid back albums, all magnificent. But I think the next time we have you back, we're going to have to do something a little bit more up tempo. Yeah. Well, perhaps we can get uh, Max on, and we'll do some grindcore LPs or something. I'm, I'm sure he'd love nothing better. But, <laughs> you know, but, I, I, uh, I might just say, "Here, Max, you go record. I'm taking the month off." <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for having me back, Morris. It's been an absolute pleasure, and um, I'll try not to leave it so long next time. No, excellent. Excellent. Look forward yeah. to it and Thank you. Uh, for all for uh, any of you listeners out there please spread the word that uh, both these shows exist always looking to have uh, new people not only listen to the show but if you listen to it and you like it and you think look i'd like to have a chat on the show i'm very friendly please hit me up say i want to come on the show and talk about an album that i love i'll say fine come on always love to have new people to talk to it's great it's fun stuff but in the meantime watch some great movies read some great books listen to some wonderful records and generally be nice to each other. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 